Welcome back to the Rethinking Podcast. Today we are talking with the host of the new Rethinking series, The Socioeconomics of Disruptive Tech. Kunz Mates put many of the most knowledgeable people together regarding economics and technology. And in this episode, we get to hear the behind the scenes. A little more about Kuhn before we start. Kuhn Smeets is an honor student in economics and business economics at Radboud University, doing next year in exchange with the Peking University in Beijing. As part of honors programs, he's also researching the history of economics and economic thought, fintech, and the socioeconomics of disruptive tech, especially AI. Besides this, he's also been a winner, mentor, and organizer of various hackathons at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Rethinking Podcast. Today, we're talking with Kuhn, who has something really cool to share that's coming out in a couple of days when we're recording this, and that the first episode will have least uh, released when we upload this. So Kuhn, what's happening in a couple of days? Uh, it's something I'm really excited about. So for a little over a year, I've been working on an uh, interview series on the socioeconomic consequences on the disruptive, sector, on disruptive technologies, such as AI and robotics. So why have I been doing this? And who are guests? Well, firstly, they're guests. They're very wide. And it started off pretty small, but I think it's fair to say we've got some of the foremost experts in the world. The first interview will be with Daron Asimoglu and Martin Wolf, which you may have was, uh, watched. And I thought it was an incredible interview. And you really see the broadness of economics and discipline, also the struggles of economics. And I think it is very, very interesting to watch. I would highly recommend it. But it's not the only interview in this series. In total, I have something between 14 and 20 interviews. And they're all with the foremost experts. So professors from MIT, professors from Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, researchers from there as well, Stanford. Uh, venture capitalists, people with big AI companies, but also entrepreneurs. And what's so cool about it is that it's not a conventional series in the sense that, okay, so we'll just look at economics, which is basically likely the labor markets and the companies and such. But we also look at ethics, AI ethics. Uh, we'll look at applications, healthcare. We'll look at fintech, so a lot of topics. And what I think is really important is to have its representatives. So I think a big issue in economics and the AI sector and technology sectors is that a lot of people look like me, so to say, and uh, or a little older, a little bolder overall. And uh, that it's especially a big issue with the data, which is something you'll also hear about in the series and many other aspects of bias and such. And also there's many, many aspects of that, let's put it that way. And so what I try to do is not just to have uh, only people that look like that, but a very, very broad cast of people, and not just from the global north, also from the global south, and also interviews which focus on uh, the global south related to science, technology, innovation, or SDI policies and such. So I think it's a really, really special series, and it's cool because it's, it offers a good introduction for those completely unfamiliar with the topic, uh, but interested in it, say, while also being very, very engaging for those that are really veterans in the field, that have decades and decades of experience because of the level and the diversity of the conversations and the interdisciplinarity. So not just professor in economics, but also in psychology, medicine, and really the foremost experts, just Martin Wolf and Rona Simoglu, in conversation with each other. 
So going back to the beginning, so a year ago, why did you start this series? So I got the opportunity to do a hackathon at MIT and my team actually won that one. And then I actually did um, another one, which I was a mentor in and two more, which I was one of the organizers, including uh, one of the leadership in a leadership position of a track. So that was really, really cool. And I also got the opportunity to attend a conference at MIT, uh, also to speak at another conference. So I had a lot of opportunities that way, but for many people, that's not the case. And this is partly luck. I think in life, it's also hard work. It's also partly luck. And I wanted to do something to also help others. So what I figured out is um, basically this was over the year. So I got opportunities to speak with people there, but a lot of people don't get those opportunities. So I wanted, so that, that was one aspect of this. And the project itself started off really small. It started off as basically doing another honors project at university, uh, Rabat University. And um, I thought it was really interesting to do something with technology. I've had an interest in technology for a very long time. And similarly is with physics, basically, I found it really interesting, but I'm far more a qualitative uh, person, not, less, not so much of the math and search or the programming. I can do it, but I'm just not as good at it uh, and or enjoy it as much. So I want to do something related to that. And I figured the coolest thing I could do, basically, and more importantly, the most important thing I could do was an interview series. And it started off really small, like a couple of Dutch professors, uh, maybe a couple of Dutch entrepreneurs. And it basically incre increased and increased in size. I actually spoke to an entrepreneur at MIT at one of the uh, Rethinking Economics Festivals. And he basically said, no, you have to make it bigger in size. And we started to do that. And um, then I did basically also through the year the things which I described. And that gave me opportunities to ask some people. And also, of course, in the Rethinking Economics Network uh, professors. And I sent an email towards a uh, big... European unit. And to my surprise, I got an email back from the, I think it was a deputy head. So I was really, really happy with that. And she introduced me to some people. And then I basically started to increase in size and we started to get more and more professors. And we got to the level where we now have about 50 interviewees, a little more even, probably quite a bit more uh, at the end of the series, who are, I think, fair to say the foremost experts. Many of them are the foremost experts in their field uh, or the topics. So I think it's really, really cool. And I think that's what drove me to do it. So do something which is really cool, but more importantly, really necessary because most people will not get access in their life uh, to speaking with these professors. But through this, basically a single series which you can click and you get a full overview of everything that's going on and not just the economics, but really every aspect of it, at least somewhat covered. I think that's really, really cool, but also really necessary. So diving a little deeper, why economics and tech? Because there are so many topics that relate to economics, right? Or that you could relate to economics, but you decided on tech. And is it just because you liked it or are there other aspects that helped make this decision? I think firstly that tech is really, really cool. <laughs> it's really incredible. If you look at what we can do today with tech, um, for instance, this conversation, I'm recording this while I'm looking basically at two pieces of plastic and another uh, piece of plastic here. And you also have a couple of pieces uh, of plastic. And this will be basically go to a very, very large cable. And then it will be available anywhere. Really, really oversimplifying here. But somehow it's available everywhere by just this online website, basically YouTube, Spotify and such. And that is 
Well, if you want to describe someone in, uh, say, medieval times, and you say you would have that power, only a god would have that power. This is also, I think, what uh, you uh, know Harari very beautifully says in Homo Deus, basically, that there is almost a godlike species on Earth, and that's us. And this power will only further increase, and especially with AI. So I think it's really, really incredible but, and really could be really beneficial, but also worrisome. It's incredible where someone would even say, especially if it's misused. And economists are going into this and many of them will become data scientists because of the type of econometric training which they get. And it's very important to understand basically what are the implications of the technology which they're using. And the technologies you just described are fundamentally transforming our societies in many ways. Some ways which are very overhyped and some ways which but only further and further increase over time. And what I noticed while reading this, and this is one of the main reasons why I wanted to do this, is that the economists are saying something very different, I think, from the technologists. And this has happened quite over time. And if I can delve a bit deeper in that, basically what you've seen is that uh, economists as a science that Carl uh, Bendix Frey described this really beautifully in the technology trap, just that economists as science, basically when it was founded to take the, um, the, the the Western view, and it's the very debatable to extent that's true, but let's say it started with Adam Smith uh, as a science. So the same year as the Declaration of Independence, United States, 1776. And that's basically a time when you also are starting to see the Industrial Revolution, uh, the, the Loomis. And so, and you see the, the Lulites and such, basically they ravage against the technology of the times, the spinners and the weavers, and they're losing their jobs. And they're saying, we're going to get unemployed. The biggest army at the time was not deployed at Waterloo but to destroy the strikers. That's how big of an issue this was. So if I remember that correctly, I think I do remember that correctly. And this is, this is enormous was that at the time. And did they give you another example? You had um, a couple of Nobel Prize winners to go a bit into, into the future here. Um, this, this actually happened basically. You had a couple of Nobel Prize winners and they, bear, they basically create a report in which they express their worry that the United States will no longer be able to provide the jobs and such. This was why they were employed, basically. They were supposed to write a report on um, whether the United States would still have employment in the future and whether the uh, fundamental sectors of the United States were what will be automated away and that there will be enough employment. And they as well were worried, but they thought it was not yet there, but it will be soon. But when I'm saying this, you probably imagine this is very recent. This was actually installed under Lyndon Johnson and I think it was 1960 something. And that shows this has been a worry for a very long time and economists had heard from just about the beginning to very recently that this is going to change everything. It never really had. The same with the internet economy and everyone says talking about the new internet economy and such. Well, everyone was except for economists. And actually at the point there, that was at the time of the uh, the bubble, so to say, the internet bubble. And they had a point, basically, this is not really uh, happening. It's not that special. At least it will take longer. There's a lot of hype. And I think we're seeing the same thing now. But I'm not entirely sure whether they're correct this time. And there might be a too skeptical discipline for our own good here. Because it might be that this time things will actually be different. And that's what a lot of people like, uh, are saying. But it seems that, therefore, and this is something that I always like to say, everyone is really worried about the socioeconomics of disruptive technologies. 
except for economists. So this is something really interesting. So why is everyone really worried about what's going to happen in the economy, except for e uh, economists? And if you then look at the technologists, they're really seeing something happening and they're expecting things like a uh, uh, artificial intelligence, which is as smart as us, or even smarter, and can do everything, artificial general intelligence, uh, that's often called AGI. And um, if that will come here in the economy we have now with the mass inequalities that we're seeing, this might go ahead enormous problems and this is what, something which i also got really interested in and i really want to explore that like are the economists right or the technologists and i think that that's more general life the truth is somewhere in the middle so and the thing here as well is that it's fundamentally uncertain you don't know what's going to happen with these technologies and if they go indeed the way that for instance authors ray kurzweil are describing that we will have this very 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 soon we got a very big problem because a lot of jobs get automated away and you will see a further intensification of something we've seen for the last 40 years. Partly the, the policies we've selected, very, very largely that. Um, we will see mass inequality. And that is something I think that worries me and that we should really delve into further uh, with our research and our focus. But I think a lot of this stuff is technology. We shouldn't overhype it. It's not just that and it's not going to solve all our problems but it can solve quite a few or every EV aviate a lot more. So if you have such a big problem, where do you start if you want to tackle it? How did you look at this whole topic and you were like, okay, these are the kinds of topics that I need to have in the series to make sure that we have the baseline to solve I, the problem uh, or potentially understand the problem in the first place. I think a good way with, approaching these things is just literally type the, uh, the, the very short description of this into Google Schooler and see whatever paper pops up. And the papers that pop up are going to be likely by uh, Rona Simoglu, Pascal Restrepo, and uh, David Otto, to name a few. And they're very, very influential uh, economists in this topic. And that's a very good starting point. And what's then interesting is to, I had the opportunity, like I mentioned, to attend some conferences, such as World Summit AI. And I also asked a few people there where I could interview them and many said luckily yes. And then you, you also have the AI ethics there. And I did a few hackathons, which I mentioned. For instance, I spoke with some people in healthcare and I asked them. Uh, also at all MIT conferences, I had the opportunity. So it's, it's slowly built up. And I think I selected all the people through that, but because you attend these high level conferences, you have somewhat of an idea of what's the most important worries and the most important thinking. And then if I would have to describe it, I would say it's, First of all, the economy generally, the political economic choices, and that's covered with the interview which we're uploading uh, by SMO, Glue and Wolf. And then there's also society, which is for next week. But you will also see, like I said, the ethics, which are really, really important. The ethics of AI and the robotics, which I uh, hope we'll also do an interview on. Then there's a super intelligence, the same for that. I hope you'll also do an interview on that. Um, and then you also see the healthcare and FinTech, which is also very, very major. And I've also done a bit of research in myself. It's very, very important, basically, uh, what's happening in fintech. It's very transformative, especially- So for those who don't know, what is fintech? Financial technology. And it's something as simple as, uh, say in, in, uh, in the West here, we often use a bank pass. And you basically go to an ATM, you can print money, and basically money comes out, etc. China and such, and maybe in Africa to also to a large extent, are skipping some of these steps. They're just paying by their phone. 
So it's a very different uh, infrastructure which they're using, and it's, it's basically digital infrastructure, like almost, like I said earlier, I think also with the, like it's almost like magic, basically. You can just pay with your phone. You can. In China is very advanced. Many of these topics It's also something which I therefore also included uh, here. In some ways, they're they're more advanced than the West. In in many respects, you will see some trends happening there here very very soon. Uh, such as super apps. I'm not sure whether you will actually see it here, but they're way ahead of the game to a large extent. And um, they have, for instance, super apps. Now, what's a super app? It's basically an application that's WhatsApp, Facebook, uh, Twitter, everything in one. Uh, WeChat, for instance, and it's really impressive what you can do. That you can pay with it, you can scan and check your uh, your menus with it. It is really, really impressive. So they're really ahead of the game there, and I think that things like that need to be talked about because this will fundamentally transform our economy, or is already changing fundamentally your economy. And to some extent, things stay exactly the same. And that's what's great about economics that. Often, sometimes not, but often very great framework of uh, economic analysis works really well here. However, in some parts it breaks down. And that's just, and I think it's very important to also look at where it breaks down. And it's something we can also go further into and to analyze that further and to understand it from, especially in the disciplinary perspective. So where does it break down then? What kind of problems does economics not catch? So what I think is our main issue, this is also why um, I am at Rethink Economics to a large extent, is the basic model from which we start. In many ways, it's really, really great. It's really great for another forms of analysis. I am going to, to, to say that it's the neoclassical model, basically, of supply and demand with the assumption of perfect rationality and perfect competition. And let's just say with no imperfections, because that's, of course, how these models become a little bit more realistic, but um, attached here. And the model is great because it explains a lot of relations. However, it also misses quite a few. And that's, in my opinion, is the main issue. Because you start from this model of perfect rationality, perfect competition. You start from the assumption that people behave like that. And you then add imperfections. But because this is your starting point, this is what you also always will presume the world looks like, even with more attached things and such. And I think that that is causing a lot of the issues. Now, for instance, if you look at trust, trust is not seen as rational in this sense, or has to be explained as an altruistic behavior, which is rational. And therefore, it's also a little silly sometimes, these models. Uh, in the Becker sense of the uh, Gary Becker, a very famous economist from the University of Chicago, um, or the perfect fundamental markets uh, assumptions. But I think it's an issue that we start from that. And if you start from that, a lot of things are going to seem less of an issue or less sensical as an issue. And I think that is a something we shouldn't underestimate. And something so we should... where do you start then? If you don't start at that point, where, where could you start? What I will think perhaps is to start from, okay, what does economic society look like? So for instance, if I would ask you, what is the biggest sector in the Netherlands? What I mean to say, it's... It, Nobody, I also actually, I should also, I also actually cannot answer this. That's weird. That's mm. really, really weird. I think, and the same if I ask you for growth rates and for a lot of aspects of economic history. So what exactly does your economy look like? How does an economy operate? You cannot talk about that. And I think we should be able to focus, on, we should focus on that. Mm. So how do we do that? I think by 
literally, for instance, starting with the question which I just asked, so what is the biggest sector of your country? So what does this sector look like? How does it operate? What is the supply chain? What do the supply chains look like? What, what does the government actually do here instead of simply saying what we think it does? What mm. is the history of how it operates? And especially that history uh, component. So how did these sectors develop? How did their economy develop? And perhaps equally important, how did their economic thinking develop? I think that that is also so important to understand, not just so, okay, we ended up with the model which I described, but how did that emerge? Because we did not start with that model. Smith was a very different thinker, especially than he's often described. If you look at Adam Smith's work, he saw, you basically have, the, I think this is always a bit of a thing which economists talk about, but it's, I think I should also mention it here as well. So everyone always starts from the world of nations, but he also wrote the theory of the moral sentiments. I'd recommend not to read them. <laughs> They're awful books uh, to actually read through. I, I actually did that when I just started, but it was probably awful decision because it is one hell of a thing to get to. Marx is worse on the side note, but um, that said, basically, Smith talks about a far more complex world than is often than is often he's often attributed to, and especially his theory of moral sentiments as the very interesting moral dimension. Because remember, Smith was not an economist that didn't exist at the time. He was a moral philosopher. So I think that's really to understand that history and to really read your Marx, whether for instance, sad to read your Schumpeter, to read your Hayek, to read your Friedman, is very, very important to have a good understanding of how your discipline was developed. And what you see as well is that this model, which I just described, is something from now, you could say with the Martian Revolution, which was a reaction to Marx, um, basically cha changing the work of Ricardo into somehow basically an argument for capitalism will be overthrown. Um, but to come back to, to the initial uh, question here, basically, so I think it's very important to start from that history. And this the model we have here is from the 1980s, the uh, classical revolution, I would say, the new classical revolution, and it's good in many ways. I think it's also, we at Retic Economics are often, so, some people may disagree with that here, but I think it is a good model in many ways. It's just that it has some blind spots, and those are creating enormous issues, and I think can partly be attributed to the mass inequality which we're seeing now. Hmm. So, I don't know. So economic models have changed over time or economic thinking has changed over time, but partially stayed the same. Is there a way for tech to come into economics and economic models? Or is it a separate thing to have economic and tech on the side, but it won't really fit in economics? So it has a place in economics and it has a very strong place historically economics. Now, if you look, for instance, at the solar model, which many economists will be familiar with, it's your basically bread and butter microeconomic model, uh, most basic microeconomic model there is on technology, I would say. What does it say? It says basically that technology is an exogenous phenomenon from society. It is what explains the fundamental driver of economic growth. However, it's exogenous. Now, what does that mean? It's not a model, we cannot explain it, dot basically what it means. And don't get me wrong, it's a great model in many, many ways. I don't mean to, to say that Robert Solo made a bad model here. It's just that the exogenous part is a pretty big issue. And today you have the endogenous model from Romer and such, 
Um, and many others have Roma won the Nobel Prize for that. That's why I'm naming him. Um, but you also have with that the work of Mazzucato, who I think describes state-led innovation very beautifully. But we'll also look at other forms of non-lab mission-driven, uh, non-mission-driven innovation in the series, uh, especially in emerging markets and developing countries. So that is, I think, how you can partly see uh, technology and economic models, but you can also focus on the labor market. It's very often focused. Um, and then you are ended with the work of, of authors, which I mentioned before, this is David Arthur, known as a Melglu, Pascal Strepo, which are very, very great authors on this. And they're basically saying, okay, we have this labor replacing technology. So basically, oh my God, the jobs are going to be automated, but you also have labor enhancing technology to slightly change the terms they're using. And this basically means that, okay, you become more productive. An example of that is basically um, things that, that really make you more productive and more valuable in your actions. That's basically, that's also a form of technology. And then there's also uh, the work of what's happening to firms. So the winner takes all market, basically. Will Google take over the world, so to say? And the uh, will Facebook take over the world? Will a Chinese tech giant take over the world in that sense? Because they're just that, that damn productive. And or they have an artificial general intelligence that takes it over. And here the work of Schumpeter is very interesting. Um, Joseph Schumpeter of um, uh, Creative Destruction and also Conductive, uh, a Russian uh, very interesting economist that luckily managed to get his work out before I think being killed in the Gulag. So that's also something to remember. It's a very, very interesting discipline economics when you start to look at its history. Very colorful ca characters, so to say. Everything from uh, Robert Maltus or uh, uh, Reverend, um, uh, I think, he, what's the English word for it? Basically, um, a priest, so let me put it that way. And also the not economist, uh, as he's also known, Joseph Tornstein Weben. So there is a, it's a very broad discipline, let me put it that way. I think that physics also has some colorful, very colorful cast, but economics as well. But to come back to what's the Joseph Schumpeter, he's also very interesting on a side note, but his uh, creative destruction, basically, firms come up and down, conductive, which I mentioned, basically, the waves of uh, industrial change and such. So whole new um whole new technologies and such which rise and increase productivity and then it goes down again and i think it was so low that said basically that the the computer can be seen everywhere except for the productivity statistics in i think around the 1980s so and the 2000s and such and now you're starting to see it but still not really if that's the work of uh, robert gordon which is also mentioned by wolf uh it's really great on that so this is all kinds of examples of how this is happening, but also basically that, eco that the companies there, they ride the wave, so to say, and then they fall again. And you see, for instance, with the great, uh, what was the great, the great city in the United States, Detroit, the, the, the auto manufacturers and really the most powerful companies in the world at the time. Detroit is really not what it was, to put it that way. And now it's Silicon Valley, Toronto and such. So Toronto, the AI, uh, the AI capital of the world, you could say, Silicon Valley and many forms of tax. In, in China, there are many, many uh, places as well, which are basically the hardware capitals, uh, the software capitals. Uh, they have science parks, uh, which basically have the same budget as the European Union hopes to attract in total for uh, artificial intelligence. That's just a Western a, a park in Shanghai. Now, the actual numbers are a bit more complex, I think, than are 
in some of the reports, which I'm citing here from McKinsey. But it is interesting to see basically how big um, and how much is going on and how much you can do with economics. So you know a lot now about economics and tech and how it all works together in the history. Going into the series, did you already know this much or did you have to prepare a lot throughout building the series? Um, how did that go? I think I already knew quite a bit. I think when I started with, uh, with university, I already read a couple of the books which I'm discussing now. I think I, I read the work of, of Asimoglu and such, uh, Why Nations Fill. I actually have my copy still here at the end of my bookshelf. And um, I can actually show you this with uh, just, there's a huge portion of, oh, of books uh, here. Now the camera is not really going sharp, but there are a lot of books which I read here. So I would say I only read maybe five of those. And now it's, I think four times that. So what I read at least. And there are also a lot of papers and a lot more other things, a lot more videos and such. Uh, and that was just one side. I have two more, two more piles of that. So I read a lot for this. And, um, but I already had written some, uh, sorry, uh, had read some of these. So it says, uh, The Singularity is Near, uh, Fourth Great Work to Rise of Robots, um, the, the Second Machine Age, all really, really great books. And they really show the diversity of the perspective and the uncertainty. And that basically got me thinking, wait, if it's this uncertain, but we actually see that something is likely going to happen because the technology seems to say that, but the economists are not really sure, we should probably start thinking about this because if the technologies are right and say that you will have this artificial general intelligence that will be far more productive than any person and could do everything relatively cheaply and not everything is basically done by that thing and it's in the hands of one company or even one person what will your economy look like then and we should really start to consider what type of society we want then do we want universal basic income or do we want to have a social aspect there so there are a lot of other areas which I'm bringing up here, like the universal basic income, UBI, uh, which are also important to consider in the context of this. So, so the, why the, haven't economists looked into this more? They have looked into this, but I think that they're just more skeptical than, I'm not saying that's wrong on the side, but I think that, that so far in history, they've always been right on that one. Basically, yeah, it's not, it's more hype. Like, like what I described uh, earlier, like there was a lot of hype throughout uh, history and such since basically the start of discipline. And so far, they were always right that this is not going to change everything. And now there are more and more economists saying this is going to change quite a few things. And it's very largely dependent on our political economic choices, which, but the thing is that if these, these technologies indeed scale up, I don't think economists are paying enough attention. I think that quite a few are, but not even to the extent that I think will be important. And I think that more people should be focusing on that. And I think, especially universities, we should at least mention this possibility during the bachelor, especially if you're training AI scientists, practically data scientists, which is practically what an econometrician is. Mm. So looking back at how far, you, for how far you've now uh, created the episodes, what did you not expect when you look at the episodes? Or I never managed to do this. <laughs> <laughs> and then, what are your three favorite lessons that you've learned from it so far? Because you knew a lot when you started, but you had to learn a lot more while you were creating them and then you interviewed them. And so what are three lessons that either kept coming back or that you learned or that you didn't expect to learn from it? Well, I think firstly is that 
And I think this is true more generally. The truth is somewhere in the middle. I think it is somewhere between what the technologists are saying and what the economists are saying. Yes, this is going to change a lot, but not everything. And it's not going to go as quickly as you expect. Because take your self-driving cars. It could, even if you can build that, well, it, it might be, and this is what, the techno what some technologies might point at. I would say, to some extent, I like to call it the, 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 the Ray Kurzweil, Rodney Brooks skill. And that's basically, you have Ray Kurzweil who is saying this is going to change everything very quickly. Basically, think that he is 2032 uh, for an artificial general intelligence and 2049 for artificial intelligence, which will be smarter than us, like a super intelligence, like with a singularity, as it's often referred to. Um, and then you have Rodney Brooks that... And basically, something with Kurzweil always uh, basically believes honestly that I think there is a lot of truth to that actually, but um, I'm not sure we'll already make it for him. Is that we can then upload a brain and such, and we can live forever, things like that. So, really, the techno optimist uh, uh, perspective. And then you have Rodney Brooks that always likes to uh, say that we're not to Ray Kurzweil whenever he meets him that he is going to die. And why that? Because Rodney Brooks is far more skeptical on what's actually happening. He's a robotics expert. And yes, things are going far slower on the robotics end than in the software end. I think that's fair to say. Um, like literally making a hand that can do this, like literally a hand that can do, like if I put this here, pick, get this here, get this here, get this here. This is what Amazon is trying to do, basically, and what has its workers do. And they just cannot really get the robot right. It's going better and better, but it's even something as simple as that is still not possible. So this is going on some end really, really, uh, really far. Like you have already pretty well uh, working self-driving cars, but also not same time I cannot, my robot cannot pick up a bottle and put it somewhere else. It's doing not know the exact shape. So it is going fast in some ways, in some ways it's growing really, really slow. And the truth is somewhere in the middle there, I think, how fast it is going. And it's to some extent dependent on the, what we experience, right? So this is what we believe. I think that's something you see as well. And I think that that is uh, very true in, generally, in general in real life. Now, the truth is somewhere in the middle here, basically, with just about every discipline and how bad the world is going and how good the world is going, how bad many things are and how good many things are so that's something i think which i learned more generally um secondly i would say something which really surprised me is that and you know it but these are the people that are working on this are actual people so when you're sitting with these professors and such you have these people with these books you read with talk whose talks you've attended and things like that so these almost heroic figures like oh my god they actually exist to some extent and that's is of course not surprising but actually sitting in front of them and just seeing that you can actually have a conversation with them that really surprised me and the same went for the hackathons mit and such and this is something i also really think is important to emphasize that these are also just people and it might seem really weird that that's surprising to uh, to me but i think when you're sitting there and you see that these are people with their own fears desires and such but also with their own issues and the same goes for you and me basically um and that make mistakes and such i think that's really important to emphasize it's okay to make mistakes even at the highest levels you are going to make mistakes in your life the same for everyone listening same for me and that's a part of it you don't have to always do it perfectly so that's something which i think learn to put it a bit more broadly and to go in a very quick and exciting there i think 
the truth as well, but the people that are at the top university, the top place and such, it is to some extent luck. It is to some extent luck, for instance, that you find something to, or simply that your parents are rich, so to say, you could afford the best education. But a counterpart to that is that it's hard work. Even if you're rich, you cannot buy your way into many of the universities. To some extent you can, but there is a bit of a cap to that that you can, especially if it's at MIT and such. So you have to work really hard. You have to be really smart. And this is to some extent because of the earlier training which you got, which is luck, you could say, but it is also really hard work. So again, there, the truth is somewhere in the middle. It is not just um, basically that these people got really lucky. They also work really hard. So that's always also complexity related to the inequality debates and such. And a third one is basically, in, uh, to is I think related to that actually, is that if you put in a lot of hard work, a lot is possible. If you put in the hard work to learn a skill, if you put in the hard work to create an interview series and such, and you really know how to do that, so you have the skills underlying that, you can get really far. So did you have all the skills for doing interviews and building an interview series when you started? Or are there things that you learned along the way that you were like, I didn't expect this would be part of doing this, but I guess it is. Um, I think you learn a lot of skills along the way. I think that's very true in general in life, but I did have some experience with say giving a talk and speaking digitally to people. I given some training, pitch trainings and such. So I knew how to talk in front of a camera, so to say, but a literal webcam and such. Uh, that's really, really weird overall on a side note, because now you also have, uh, I'm speaking to you, so I have a face that's reacting and such, but especially if you're giving a talk digitally, it's one hell of a thing. It feels a bit like you're like, you know that feeling when you crack a joke in front of a full room and then everybody looks at the like, Huh? that's sometimes what it feels like but then for two hours it's really really awful this is why also hats off to our teachers for going through zoom university because it's not a pleasure <laughs> um so but i think it picked up a lot of the skills along the way to actually do this writing emails is something i'm always good at be sure on the side though that's a really important skill be able to write a good email the amount of people that cannot do that is really surprising uh basically good interpunction good english is something i think was also necessary or uh, you could also do it in your native language, of course, if you want to do something like this. Spanish um, is also a below demand for that. Chinese, and uh, that's of course not a language, it's Mandarin and such. Uh, but also be something like this would be really interesting. And, um, so a lot of those skills you pick up along the way, you basically learn how to do them. And a lot of skills I think you innately have to have, like being able to be confident enough to stand in front of a camera, which you can learn. But it's still difficult. I have to say I'm really, really scared before interviews often because you're sitting with these people. But what is the biggest worry is, well, we, if I say something wrong, we can rewind a couple of minutes, so to say, or we can. But if you're speaking with these people and you have 55 minutes, if you say something wrong, you cannot really edit that out. You have to basically keep the whole thing going and you basically just have the time that you have assigned with them and the camera, the recording can something can go wrong and you cannot redo it with these people. So that's really, that's one uh, nerve. And of course, they actually are sitting in front of some of the greatest experts on this in the world. So did you, for every guest that you got, did you expect to be able to get them or are there no. people you were like, I never thought this would happen? Um, 
I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> let me let me put it this way. I actually had one interview where I was like, okay, so I, I told about, okay, so I'm going to do a panel with this many people. And then I invited two very, 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 very high class professors on a certain topic. And I figured, okay, you know what? I don't have a direct connection here. That's also something which I sometimes had the advantage of that I got a direct email. Even then, sometimes they don't accept. So it's 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 very difficult in practice. There is, there is a lot possible, especially if you know some people and you can basically get the series starting but it's still difficult to get professors so i basically just sent that email out and i figured okay i'll just try and then one of them accepted and i was really shocked by that and then the next one accepted as well so suddenly you had a full panel <laughs> so things like that happen it's 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 sometimes very surprising that people accept i think that i never expected to get most of this list when i started off and i especially didn't expect it to interview derona simone who would say is in my opinion the greatest economist living economist i think the greatest that economist i'd say with john maynard Keynes. But I would say Daron Asimoglu is really the best living economist. And the same actually goes for Martin Wolf, definitely the best financial journalist in the world. And I never expected to interview both of them, let alone together on a panel, which is, was just insane. And there are many, many more because I'm just describing these. But the second panel will be with two people, uh, one of them. Basically, it was the first book that I opened up my university, uh, like the God from the Shelves. Cesar Hidalgo's Great the Atlas of Complexity Economics, fantastic work. And Andrew McAfee basically is, I would say, the person together with Martin Ford that got me interested in this. His second of uh, is the second machine age. And to say Martin Ford actually will also be on the series. And that's just incredible that the people that got me interested, that I got the opportunity to interview them. That's absolutely insane to me. And I still have trouble almost believing that. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, you did a great job there with all the all the names I've seen coming by and all the subjects that are coming up. People are going to be uh, pretty amazed, I guess. I think that's going to be a success. So what do you hope people get from this series? I think a lot of the topics which I've described throughout this interview, um, but if I would say one lesson, which is always the, the ending question, which uh, throughout the interview, like what is the one thing you would uh, say to students in economics? It's that I, what I would like to get them from this, uh, this series is that it's complex, what the socioeconomic effects will be of this. And it's important that we look at it interdisciplinary. But So firstly, it's very complex. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen. We don't know exactly how impactful it will be but it's already having some impact i hope that people see that and in very surprising ways and it's very important to look at interdisciplinary so you cannot simply say these are our pure economic models and this is what comes out of it you also have to say okay how does this actually work in the real world how is the ethics of this how does it work in the healthcare sector how does it work in the finance sector and how does it work in not just my own region my own country and to give you an example of how important this is um and this is there are three i think really good examples of that and um I, I won't go into all of them i don't think we have time for that but just the like google it made an algorithm which could uh recognize i think a lot of, of animals and people and such and it was tested inside inside at google if i remember the story correctly and it worked great and then they released it outside and people with the African-American background got categorized as gorillas. That's 
awful. And it gets something as well on what was, I'm not saying it still is, the amount of people that worked at, Cooler, uh, at Google that didn't look like this. It's not still, not sure whether it's still the case. It's less the case at least, but it shows something on the importance of ethics. And the same goes for uh, hiring algorithms. I think it was Amazon or Facebook. I think it was Amazon. They're basically uh, where they had these algorithms, which was uh, then uh, basically hire people and such based on previous data. And you would say it's math, it's objective. And that's a lot, a lot of people start off with, same with our economic models. It's pure e e math, there's nothing biased about that. It's math, it's data. There's nothing biased about it, but the data on which it was built was biased. And it resulted in the algorithm itself didn't look for gender, it didn't look for race and such, but it will explicitly filter whether someone is female and then put them in the rejection pile based on all the classifications. So this was luckily seen before and it was just not fixable. So the thing has never been employed, but it says something if, if we hadn't seen that, such as was the case in the justice se uh, sector, the, the third example I would say, and we'll also, we'll also see in the ethics interview, is there actually was the case that you had these algorithms that if I remember correctly, it was the case that if someone was uh, re-offend, it was able to see that the same for white people and people with an African-American background, but the chance about not do that, or was the other way around, the chance about not do that, it was seen three times uh, less likely for African-American. And uh, uh, so they were three times as likely to be held longer because they were seen as to, to re reclassify again to, to commit more crime and such. And that resulted in basically this thing being biased and really ruining people's lives. And that's really, really worrisome if you haven't seen that. The same goes if you, just to be the case that if you will type in an African-American sounding name, you'll get like, no, 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 background check. That's just because this was what the ads that we're selling. Not a, say, white sounding name, background check, but African-American sounding name, background check. And that really shows how these things, are, how this objective math is affecting our society. And this is why you should look at it more broadly, in my opinion. Interesting. So does that, how did you deal with that in the series? How did you make sure that the perspective you get on socioeconomics and tech was actually diverse and plural also in that aspect? So I think it's a very important to emphasize that I had a lot of help with the making of the series, but I did most of the stuff myself. And there's only so much you can do then of course, but, and you have to hope that people accept and such. So I think that still overall, we have amazing panels and we have a very, very pluralistic and broad perspective. So I'm going to miss a couple of perspectives. I'm going to miss a couple of important people. That's just the way it is. I still think that we did manage to find, uh, did manage to have a very broad and diverse perspective by including the topics which I just described. We have interviews on ethics and such by some of the foremost experts on the world on this topic. So you don't just get your labor markets and economics, and even there you will hear about ethics. Same goes for the medicine interviews, same goes for many other topics interviews. So you get this really broad perspective. So I made sure of that by basically asking the foremost experts in the economics, but also in AI ethics in medicine, and then this topic then combined uh, in many, many topics. So I, I don't speak about it myself, of course, so I cannot only so far steer basically what it's about. But I think that, that by inviting such a broad group of experts and not just from the global north, but also from the global south, or even employed in the global north, but originally from the global south, you get this really broad perspective. Hmm. 
So with every guest, we do a little lightning rounds. So I ask a question and you just say the first thing that comes up in your mind, okay? All right. What is the skill any economist should learn? To be critical. Who do you admire or look up to in economics? Can I say two names? Because otherwise I get in trouble. <laughs> Daron Asimoglu and Martin Wolf to go with that one and to say someone which I hadn't interviewed. He's not going to be happy that I uh, classify him as an economist, but Nassim Nicholas Taleb. What is the question you want me to ask that I haven't asked you yet? That's a good one. And I actually don't have something that pops in my head. Um, well, I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you did this really well. So maybe what I would like to do in the future, basically based on this, that might be something interesting. Okay, let's hear it. So what I'm planning to do with this is um, I'm not entirely sure yet. I, I think I might go into academics or I'm going to go into uh, entrepreneurship or consultancy or something along those lines. But, uh, but I would think I will either be analyzing the social economic uh, technologies which I'm describing from an historical perspective. I got quite a bit, at least for, for my, my uh, level of education, quite a bit of experience in historical economic analysis. So I, I think I would like to combine it with the socioeconomic or disruptive tech. There's a lot of opportunities there on analyzing the history of this or to go into entrepreneurship and to work maybe at a major company and then to see, uh, I think you have Microsoft's Octopass, I think he it is like his their chief economics scientist uh, related to political economy. It's a slightly different acronym, slightly different name, but uh, something along those lines I think will be really, really cool. Um, so something along those lines or to start my own company and to build this tech. And then I will most likely help a group of technological experts that maybe have trouble selling their product or to get into contact with the right people to basically be the CEO type of thing there. So what does the future of economics look like, according to you? I think it is controversial at rethinking, but I think it is going better and better. But speaking with some of the foremost experts, of course, uh, in economics, like, like the interview, which has uh, their own intimate clue, Martin Wolf, you see that people are critical so I think in the mainstream, it's already very critical. So I think it is, this criticism will continue. And I think that economics itself will move away of the assumption of perfectionality, perfect competition, not by moving away with this model as the first building block in education, which I think is wrong because of the reasons that we discussed earlier. And I think it will move towards a more data-driven empirical approach and more to the kind of complex economic school. I think that will be the future of economics and the way it's explained by, say, Ray Chetty at Harvard. And I think there's also another Harvard economist. I've lost his name for a moment, but he also gives the introductionary course there. And he gives a really broad, uh, broad perspective on that. And I would like the education itself to move in that direction. And the science of economics itself, I think it should have more history. But I think more people are saying that, so I think it's really good. It should have more interdisciplinarity. Same for that. And I think it should have 
less quantitative concepts, a little less. I think there should be more room for people that don't do quantitative stuff, but more for qualitative stuff. And I think that it's moving in that direction, but it's not the most respected stuff. And I think if you know about the conservatism and the hierarchy in economics, I think that's an issue. And I think it should move more in that direction of qualitative economics, like history, economic sociology, etc. So the final question, what is your advice to future economists? Be broad and bold. Be broad in the sense of read interdisciplinary, think interdisciplinary, and to really be skeptical and so, so really understand what you're talking about and really trying to read as broad as you can, so to say, trying to read your politicology, read your psychology, read your sociology, read your history, very, very important. There's that quote by Keynes that basically said, you have to be a good mathematician, you have to have a very rare combination of skills, a mathematician, a historian, a sociologist, a political scientist, and you have to be able to come with these very complex abstractions, find which are the right abstractions, and to move from that, and to be also explain to policymakers. And secondly, to be bold. I think it's very important to say this. I also didn't know much about this a year ago. Well, I didn't knew quite a bit about it, but like a lot of side questions like the inequality, labor markets and such, but I didn't know that much about the technology. So, so I said, you know what, screw it. I'm going to make my own thing here. I'm going to make my own interview series. And then I think it's fair to say I moved a little bold in that sense. And it will not always work out. And there are many ways in which you can bold. You don't have to speak with the foremost experts for that on a certain topic. You can also be bold by approaching that professor you wanted to ask and to uh, at your own university or asking someone uh, a question related to a topic and to actually be willing to go against them or to read books on an interdisciplinary topic and try yourself to become your, if you want to become a data scientist, to actually do that and to allow yourself to try. And I think, especially I think that you see more often to do include that gender uh, bias. I think that men do that far more easily than women. I think that you see that men overall far more easily say, okay, screw it, I'm going to try it. So I will encourage everyone, I think especially women to, to do that, to actually overcome your fears. And that's what I'm trying to say with be bold, overcome your fears and try it. Fortune favors the bold. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kun, for being on. And I am so excited for this series to come out. Thank you. Me as well. And thank you for having me. That was a great conversation. Thank you.